Today's Skim from the Couch is presented by H&R Block. At The Skim, we're always trying to find ways to make our to-do list smaller. Whether it's a new app, the 135 method, or any other kind of productivity hack, you can never save enough time. We know it because we've tried everything, and at the end, we just want more time. That's especially true during tax season. That's why there's H&R Block. More on that later. For now, let's get into the episode. So few people get an at-bat, you know, like so few people get an at-bat. And if you get an at-bat, like that's so amazing that you just have to swing for the home run. You got to go big because for all of us who have been waiting to get an at-bat and for all of us who've been waiting for women to get an at-bat, like it's just in our duty to like swing and see what a privilege it is to be the one at-bat. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? So please welcome Katya Beauchamp to the couch. Katya is the CEO of Birchbox, the subscription company she started to help people discover new beauty products, which I'm sure you have either tried or definitely heard of. She actually began her career in finance, but a few years in, she realized that she didn't feel challenged. So she decided to get her business degree at Harvard. So easy. (laughs) That's where Katya met Haley Varna, and together they launched Birchbox in 2010. Their company took off, and it helped create the discovery commerce industry as we know it today. Haley decided to go her own way in 2015, and there have been bumps along the way, like with any business. But over the years, the company has grown and earned 2.5 million active subscribers. And in 2018, Birchbox was acquired by one of its investors, Viking Global. Katya has stayed on as CEO. So Katya, welcome to the couch. Thank you. We are thrilled to have you here. Um, Well, first of all, before we kind of dive into everything, for our listeners, skim your resume for us. Okay. So um, resume, I guess, always starts in college. Do we go that far back when you're still this old? Do it. (laughs) So I went to undergrad at Vassar and studied international studies as well as economics and Spanish. I started my career in finance um, where I did commercial real estate finance and investment banking. And then, as you mentioned, I just felt I was very young, but I just felt that I could do more. I didn't really know what that means. I'm from El Paso, Texas. I didn't have that same sort of vernacular that people in New York City or in California have around entrepreneurship, but I was convinced I could do more and I wanted to go to business school. was fortunate enough to get in, but didn't know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur until I learned about it there. So from there, started to learn about it first year at HBS in our entrepreneurship class, became very like devout that I just wanted something that was as hard as that because I wanted to know what I was capable of. And then fortunately, Haley and I came together and had just a great conversation similar to the two of you, it sounds like, where we started thinking about something that felt obvious to us, um, landed in beauty where we weren't experts and said, why don't we, like, why couldn't it be us that does this in a better way? Um, and from there, we launched Birchbox in um, 2010, uh, the test, and then launched it out of graduation after. What's not on your resume? Tell us one thing about your career that we can't find on LinkedIn. 
Um, I have interviewed for plenty of jobs that I haven't gotten. That is a really um, important thing, especially in business school, that even led to the fact that I started Birchbox. I think a lot about even the summer internship between the first and second year um, that I did and didn't take and that those paths I still think all the time I could have ended up trying to become a management consultant. Um, I could have ended up, you know, really, I, my husband had moved to New York for me and we were planning on moving to LA because his career is really in film production. And I could have just really done that. Um, and all of the things that led to the ability to start this company, um, that's not on my resume. What is a job that you had really wanted that you didn't get? Well, in business school, I mean, first of all, I came from El Paso, Texas. So again, I was just learning about these fancy jobs up here. Um, you know, thinking about professional lives coming from, I would say, just a more typical American city. You think just more about things like doctors and lawyers and writers. And um, I didn't really understand just the vast opportunities that were out there. And you go to business school and you learn a lot about private equity for me for the first time and, and management consulting for the first time. And Management consulting seemed really attractive because it felt like a continuation of business school where you were really being put in the seat of, you know, here's a problem and we want you to come up with a solution without the responsibility of implementation. Sounded awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I definitely applied and didn't get the first job I applied to. And luckily, we were starting Birchbox at the same time. That started to get a little bit of traction from cold emailing brands. So I just put the brakes on further interviewing and said, I'm going to do this. So give us the overview between cold emailing about this idea that you have to what it's been become today. Sure. Um, so cold emailing, I'll just say quickly started from when I was in undergrad, um, my then, you know, boyfriend, friend, and now husband was telling me about cold emailing that he had done successfully. And then right before I went to business school, I saw that they were offering Harvard Business School students IBM ThinkPads. And so I felt very motivated that Steve Jobs should know and intervene. <laughs> and <laughs> Apple should also offer Harvard Business School students an offer because these people, you know, theoretically, we're going to go in the world and represent brands and aren't these people you would want using an Apple computer. And he actually um, got back and I was able to get like the first uh, MacBook Air. And I was one of like two people working oh in gosh. business school on an Apple computer. And I think the only person that Steve Jobs had given the same deal of the ThinkPad for the MacBook Air. That's a crazy story. Yeah, it is a crazy story. And it's it's also like the turnaround time was like 48 hours before I heard back and two weeks before I had the computer. And mind you, he didn't give me a free computer. He gave me the same deal, yeah. which I thought was like wow. also really smart. Wow. You know, like yeah. you pay um, yeah. and, and becoming a consumer. I was already a Mac consumer and I shared that in the cold email. But so I believed in the ability to, you know, have this um, touch point to people who just felt really far away. And when we started Birchbox, one of the big challenges that people had for us was that Haley and I, neither of us came from the beauty industry. And we didn't know anybody. And we were nobody. Um, but we did have a .edu email address. And obviously, harvard.edu is helpful. Um, and we started cold emailing brands with a very simple ask, a very short email and a one pager, just asking them if they would help us form, like finalize this idea. That turned into the initial meetings, turned into a beta test while we were in school. 
And then basically we had what I would call like a very positive test, but false positive because it was a very small test. Um, and then we had to go and launch and raise money. And that was probably like when it first got hard because honestly, putting the idea together, cold emailing, getting brands excited, um, getting customers excited was so downhill that we were just like, let's do that. You know, it's on, it's working, right? Well, and then we tried to raise money. So How different or similar was the beta to what actually fully launched? It really is similar. You know, it wasn't the full vision that we had. I think very quickly we had to realize neither of us were technologists, neither of us were creative directors, neither of us were merchants, neither of us like came, you know, with the perfect skills. We wanted to create the perfect experience and brand. But the idea was very much about take the chaos of beauty and make it delightful and digestible and effective to discover and then shop. And so the beta was very similar in what you to what you see, except for two things. Like one is that um, packaging obviously changed. And two is that we started personalizing as soon as we could um, do simple personalization in Excel and then actually have data scientists who did algorithms. So Birchbox was the first of its kind mm -hmm. um, in an industry that we are now very familiar with, which is, you know, re referred to as discovery commerce. And I think we take for granted all the things we can discover at home. Yeah. But way back at the beginning, the idea of sending people product samples was totally new. As you think about kind of the um, the hustle that helped get get it off the ground, um, and going back to this, you know, your gift of networking, for our listeners who are thinking about branching into something new and who aren't coming into it with a network, what are your tips for the perfect cold email and outreach? Okay, so um, the perfect cold email first and foremost might have to be sent a few different times. <laughs> um, that's really important to know that just because you didn't get an answer doesn't mean like you're done with that one. Um, but you, everybody knows how to guess an email address at this point, but go ahead and put them all in the two line. No, no sense in not showing this person that you're trying to get a hold of them creatively. Um, and then in the subject line, I think something that is compelling and that makes you want to open, um, we chose the subject line that will always remember reimagining beauty um, online. And then I think the most important thing is that you can read it on the screen of your smartphone without really having to scroll that the um, statement that you're making, I think, consider a bold statement showcasing the person like why they are the right person to be a part of it. And then the ask is simple. So the ask for us, for example, wasn't, will you be a part of the company? It was, will you give us 10 minutes to give us feedback on the idea? You know, the underlying um, sentiment being you could shape this, you know, and I think that that is a lot of the mentality of get building a relationship with somebody new is about what can I do for you? Not so much what can you do for me? It's always about this reciprocity, right? So I think an email trying to show that in a very succinct way um, is really important and make sure that the ask is something that's hard to say no to. You know, that is, it's very hard to have somebody like open a deck and read your deck. Can you look at my deck? People ask me that all the time. And I'm like, it's really a lot of time. I'm busy, <laughs> you know? So something that's easy to say can, you know, yes. What do you say yes to now? Like, what's the advice for cold emailing you? Um, I I say yes to a lot. I mean, it's been covered that I believe in cold emails, so people do cold email me often, and I want to be very encouraging. But I um, often say yes with a little bit of feedback, like what would have made this more effective. Um, you know, if I'm if I am saying yes, I try to say yes as much as possible. I think I just feel 
like one of the luckiest humans in the world. Not I mean, my job is really hard and it's a lot of really hard work, but it's such a privilege to get to invent reality every day and to start believing that that's not something unique to me, that other people can do it if they just start to realize it's a choice, right? And so I try to say yes as much as possible um, unless it's just a really open-ended and unconsidered and not as thoughtful. So it's subjective, but whenever it seems thoughtful, I say yes. So going back to the earliest days of Birchbox, how did you know you had something? Well, when, when did you realize like this is this is going to be big? It sounds silly, and we were just talking about this as a company, but the first phase of that was feeling my and Haley and then our first, um, you know, hire and co-founder, Molly's excitement for the idea of like, this is something we wanted in the market. And I think naively, but still smartly, in instantly trusting that we were a good barometer, that like we were smart women and we felt this was confusing and it couldn't be a coincidence that like the two of us from very different backgrounds and very different, you know, experiences in beauty, like both felt and that we were just so excited. Wouldn't this be fun? Wouldn't this be fun? So that was first thing. But I will say that we also were in business school at the time and we're kind of like nerding out on, you know, $500 billion beauty industry that was 2% penetrated online, inefficient market, and how we were going to like make marketing dollars and consumer consumption dollars efficient right? This like nerdy view. And I still think that's interesting. But the first time a Birchbox, you know, went out and social media and what it is today was really just starting and Twitter was a thing. And remember, like YouTube wasn't a thing yet. Instagram certainly wasn't, but Twitter was. And somebody tweeted out like, where had this been all my life? I like want to scream from the rooftops. And our first customers were not allowed to be our friends and family, did not know this person. It was just like a handful, like certainly not statistically significant of moments like that where people were like, this is literally the answer to my beauty prayers where I was like, it's working. And I mean, <laughs> not statistically significant for sure, but where I just for me felt like this has to When happen. you guys started, what was what was your strength? Like what, what were you really good at that you were like, we can do this because I know how to do X? So um, I think my strength was just energy and ability to just continue to work hard in the face of a lot of people saying no. Um, and I think strength in telling the story and getting others excited about it, whether it was going to be partners, investors, and early employees, and trying to um, quickly get people to see that this was a really compelling opportunity was my biggest strength. And then I think in terms of operationalizing the work, it was like a relentlessness and an I don't know what it is, but I just don't, I don't really have like it in me to see no. I think I, um, you can just keep telling me like you're bad and not going to work. And I just keep getting up and like willing to get, you know, pushed down again is a big part of something about me. What drives you to be so optimistic? Um, I think I don't, I don't know exactly, but I think I just do feel like genuinely so fortunate. Just, you know, I'm sure we all do. We just get to, you know, live in a world where we have a chance. And the thing that I just keep telling myself and have from very early on is if so few people get an at-bat, you know, like so few people get an at-bat. And if you get an at-bat, like that's so amazing that you just have to swing for the home run. You got to go big because for all of us who have been waiting to get an at-bat and for all of us who've been waiting for women to get an at-bat, like it's just in our duty to like swing and see what a privilege it is to be the one at bat. 
I love, I love that. It. Yeah, I love that so much. And and how do you? So I guess a question that in in building our company, we've had to revisit at different stages is using the metaphor. Like when you get up there, do you swing for the home run or mm-hmm. do you just try to get on first base? Yeah. Oh, so I think I've had to learn this in hard lessons over time. Um, I think the first few years it was effective to just like totally, you know, not point the bat, not, you know, have as much clarity of what was going to happen, but like all your might behind it. And then um, at different points in time, it was necessary to be very much more like, you know, calculated, surgical, like very deliberate about like a bunt, uh, get a ball, get a walk, you know, like what is it that you are really trying to do? But I didn't understand that for a long time. I do think that, you know, as much as entrepreneurship, business school and certain jobs give you like a compressed amount of perspective, which is like what you need, you just have to live certain things and make mistakes in your leadership to understand um, what's going to move things forward. What do you think was sort of the the darkest days of mistakes? I think the darkest days for everyone is when um, you feel like it's something fundamental about you that's holding back something that you see as having so much potential. And um, I think that happens for everybody, so it's not unique. But for me personally, it was realizing that just, uh, you know, something that I was doing with good intent was just really limiting the business. So, um I actually think it has so much to do with being a mother, but like, but you know, being starting Birchbox came first for me, and I felt like for so long it was my job to kind of give everybody like the good and the energy and the positive sides of the business, and kind of shoulder the really hard, scary things alone. And you, by trying to protect people from you know the hard parts of the business or trying to solve people's problems for them, it really limited their ability to feel like this was theirs, right? Like as in it as you were, as empowered as you were. And frankly, like you just can't be good at all the things. All right, let's take a quick break. We talked at the top about making your to-do list smaller. It's tax season. So let's talk about how to check taxes off that list. We've got an idea, H&R Block. They have a service that'll help you get over taxes and get on with your life. We can all appreciate that. It's called Tax Pro Go. Tax Pro Go is made for people who don't want to go to a tax office, but don't want to do their own taxes either. Hmm, that sounds familiar. It's definitely us, and it might be you too. Here's how it works. You upload your docs and let a tax pro do the rest. That's it, really. It's the easiest way to get your taxes done for you. So if that sounds good to you, go to hrblock.com slash taxprogo to learn more. Again, that's hrblock.com slash taxprogo. So when you think about kind of growing with your business, one of the things that's been consistent for us is the two of us and our co-founder relationship. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear what your co-founder relationship was like, and then we'll talk about the transition. Mm -hmm. Um, So really great. We were, you know, started as friends first. And again, we didn't meet and say, like, let's start a business. We were friends. We were doing things together. And we were, like, doing some projects together, planning some events and parties formally, planning some stuff for our friends. And we were realizing, wow, we're just really different, um, but really complimentary. And that's kind of what started all of this. And starting 
I mean, there's no way Birchbox could have existed without it being the two of us because we were moving so quickly and there was this inherent like trust and respect and we could do things in parallel which allowed us to move a lot faster and kind of run with our own strengths in the business. And that's really what we tried to like focus the kind of division on is like, how does it really exploit our strengths? What were each of your strengths when it came to running the business? So I think, I mean, who knows? How do you have any strengths when you're starting 27? Thank you for saying that. (laughs) I think, I mean, we were both obviously smart people went to Harvard um, Business School, but the way that we divided was this internal external, you know, approach where I had, you know, more response. I had the responsibility of like external partnerships, the external brand of the company, the leading the fundraising efforts. Obviously, we did that together. But and she had the responsibility of like operationalizing and making sure like all of the things that we were, you know, trying to extend our brand into, we could actually do. I still believe in strengths-based leadership. Instead of trying to just like get great or get good at all the long tail of things that you're just not going to be great at, um, trying to get, you know, fantastic at the things that are naturally coming from you. And we tried to really focus on reminding that that's like a good thing, you know, instead of feeling like, well, why is it bad that I can't do this thing as well as you? Or So Haley leaves in 2015. She's still involved. She became an investor in the company. Um, what was it like to have that co-founder for so long and then show up and not have her there? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely different. I think um, that is when I went through this other change of like this you know, I think I did some things wrong, which I tried to kind of shoulder a lot more by myself um, and had to realize that, you know, you can't can't be alone. I, I One of the biggest mistakes in general for us, even though we had each other, was not asking enough for external help when you don't have a big team. And then I think that does naturally extend to the team. But when, you know, your actual person that cares as much as you is not there day to day, like the first feeling is just lonelier. And a burden, like, of, like, how, you know, I have a big responsibility. You know, we, people always say it's lonely at the top. And, like, we we have totally felt that way. But we've we've always had each other. And, like, on those days, it's, like, when the two of us, you know, in our little room, it's, like, okay, we got this. When you had that kind of first realization that you're, like, okay, like, I'm, I'm the last one standing, kind of, so to speak. What did you do? Like, how did you manage that sense of loneliness or that kind of newfound stress? So I um, I really was working at the same time on, you know, my own personal leadership and recognizing that though I had always been, you know, like the CEO and, you know, co-founder of the company, that really um, as Birchbox has grown and become such a large business and a meaningful business to the industry, I needed to understand how to be a better CEO and leader. And I was doing that, um, getting coached on that and was very, very like getting comfortable with the things that I wasn't great at and letting kind of like talking about that. So I started talking to my team about the things I wasn't great at and sharing what I was going to look for in new leadership to come in this company. And that's what I really focused on was recruiting um, and bringing people in and then also developing internal talent. So it's almost spring, or at least I keep telling myself that. Looking around my apartment, it is definitely time for spring cleaning. 
Um, I've been to your apartment. I agree. And the drawer <laughs> that I'm actually dreaded going through is my like bra underwear drawer. Because I haven't been there. <laughs> no, it's just a mess. It's just like I throw everything in and then I go through it and I'm like, what is this thing that I bought years ago that I would never actually wear? No joke, though. You really should look at Third Love. They hands down have the most comfortable bras you could own. They have tagless labels. We all hate tags. Which is like brilliant and so simple. They have straps that won't slip. Very soft fabrics. They are uh, thin, lightweight memory foam cups, and they have such inclusive sizing that most other brands do not. Third Love, we highly recommend it. There really is a perfect bra for everyone, and right now they are offering skimmed from the couch listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com skim. Do it right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That is thirdlove.com skim for 15% off. So in 2016, Birchbox went through several rounds of layoffs and had to make some big changes to try and reach profitability. What was it like? Obviously, you guys have accomplished so much and you have this idea. And from the consumer facing part, it gained so much traction. And then the business hit some real challenges. Yeah. The world, you know, suddenly changed. And one of the biggest lessons I had was just, you know, you spend so much time as an entrepreneur thinking about like the strategy of the business and you kind of treat fundraising and funding your business as like this other activity. And I started to realize like funding the business has to have as much emphasis on strategy as like the actual, you know, product service that you're creating. You have to think of funding as a strategy and that's what we decided to do and we had to make really hard decisions to say, well, if the market's changing and e-commerce is no longer like a favorable category or seen as as favorable just because of, you know, access to capital and it kind of starts in the public markets, we need to be able to control our destiny um, and, you know, face the facts of how to do that. and. And it really came down to saying we have to do a lot fewer things better. We have to prioritize. Um, some of the worst days I can, like, tell you about were those days. Having to think about going from inventing reality, giving people jobs, and obviously, you know, the flip side of that and taking things away um, feels like a failure. And it's very hard not to hate yourself in those moments. In those moments, how do you – what do you do? Like, are you the kind to, like – Go home and cry? Are you the kind to... I'm a crier. For sure I'm a crier. Um, I'm not a dweller. Like I said, it's I'm not somebody who can stay down for long um, because I feel lucky and I feel like we have to, you know, recognize that, that all of the talent that has touched Birchbox is just infinitely talented. And this isn't like I can't seem so self-centered that I am the end-all be-all of their talent and careers. You have to, you know, let go a little bit um, and recognize that. And, you know, just focus on the fact that this is how, you know, this is just a part of life for a business. Were you close to giving up? Like, did part of you think, is it just time to move on? I think that um, I've... And I don't know if this is a good thing or bad thing. I don't think I've ever been close to actually giving up, but letting my mind go to that feeling of like, what would it be like to give up? I think is really, I had to do that. I've always said, you know, to people when things are really stressful at Birchbox, like, you know, it's just a beauty company. Like, world's going to be okay, mm -hmm. right? And we need to recognize that we're just really lucky to do the thing that we get to do. And we're going to like 
try really hard. But if we take ourselves too seriously, you know, the stress is going to crush us. So we have to be able to realize and visit a universe where it doesn't work out. I love your sense of um, the way you speak about a sense of perspective. Uh, I think it resonates with both of us a lot. Have you always had that? Like, how have you grown and changed as the team expanded and changed sizes and went through different things and the product developed? I mean, I don't, I think one of the things about coming from where I came from, honestly, having so much support in my life always is I didn't have like this perfect view of what having expectations for myself was. Nobody was pushing me. I didn't have this crazy pressure of like what success was. My mom was always somebody who was just proud of like the thing I did, not that it had to be something. And I honestly think that just gave me a lot of freedom as a person. And I think it's it's different from what some other people come from going to like a great business school and having this preconceived notion of success. I just feel very lucky that I wasn't burdened with like something that had to happen. I was still learning what could happen. And I was like, I can't believe this can happen. <laughs> you just raise money from other yeah. people to yeah. invent reality. And um, I do think I just always kind of had that view of like, wow, this can happen too. And this can happen too. And um, that kind of naivete that just really helped me not be afraid because I didn't know there was something to be afraid of. I wasn't thinking like, oh, and then, you know, the Wall Street Journal tells everybody that you're a bad CEO. I That didn't even cross my mind, you know. It didn't occur to me. So, so while all of this is going on in the business, you started a family that mm-hmm. started with twins. Mm-hmm. And now you've just had your fourth kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't even know where to start. You have four kids. You are running this. There have been ups and downs. Yeah. How do you, I don't even want to ask, how do you do it? But w- what has it been like? Um, I mean, you do it with a lot of help and trying to be like kind to yourself and trying to explore the kind of mother you want to be, the kind of leader you want to be and try to be honest with that. Um, but with the, on the help perspective, I mean, I, I believe that the universe just understood what I needed to make it right because I think twins really helped develop a relationship with my husband where he was just always the partner, just always very involved. Um, And even though obviously there are certain things that like you can choose to do and that can only happen as a woman, like feeding your child from your own milk, um, just having a partner that was so involved and so capable from the very beginning, I think was just game changing. Um, And I also think that children has made me such a better leader because I don't know, but for me, at least the story I tell myself is I was just constantly 100% of my waking hours and most of my sleeping hours thinking about Birchbox and how can you ever come fresh to work? Like sleep more, take vacation, but if you're always, always thinking about work and the first time you, you know, I met my children, I was just like the world vanishes around you and you actually just think about something else and it's also this like beautiful simple feeling you have especially when they're babies like the love they have for you is so simple that even though you think oh it's like net less sleep or something it's just I was fresher immediately like I had more perspective immediately and I was fresher and also things that aren't important like really do drop away um so it's definitely hard I'm very lucky that I can have help, um, but I just feel like instantly it made me better. So the past year around the birth of your fourth child was especially hard. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through kind of what your last few months have been like? 
So right around the time that we were recapped by Viking, which was such a phenomenal um, situation for the company, I literally found out I was pregnant and I was pretty far along, um, and <laughs> which is so exciting. And then I found out that I had a condition and, you know, one day just casually feeding my third son, I um, started bleeding. And I, and I knew that it was possible, so I wasn't panicked. I went to the hospital, and I was, like, full-on ready for they were going to tell me to take it easy, some bed rest maybe. But um, after a sonogram and they found out the condition was a little more serious, my doctor looked at me in the eye of this, like, man that I love and trust who's brought all of my children in the world and feels like family, and he just says, you're staying in the hospital for 10 to 12 weeks. And I'm, yeah, it, depressed is a hard, like, it's just hard to express how you know, upsetting it was because I'm sure you can imagine for the mothers listening that, you know, I had been I had been surprised to be pregnant. I had at the time, you know, when I found out a nine month old and um, I was counting my I was really, you know, I loved having this child. He was just so amazing. I was like, counting the nights that I was going to have left with him, putting him to bed by himself. Just like that, you know, 10 minutes of just like snuggle time. And I was like, I have 75 nights. And then all of a sudden I had zero. Um, and, you know, all of those little things, like just that you just seeing your kids like every day, those little moments, you know, sitting next to your husband and like grabbing someone's hand on the couch or having them like bring you your fork and knife to the table, like these just like little interactions that you take for granted and just all of a sudden like no family or not that experience. And it was a very challenging time. But at the same time, I also had this flip experience where I haven't, I hadn't had that much time without kids of working and then like to be quiet and focused. So I became extremely efficient at work. So um, you were working from the hospital? in the hospital? Oh, yes. I held, I had my first board meeting with my new board um, from a video conference. I had count, I mean, every day video conference meetings, every day people came to the hospital on my team to do in-person meetings. We closed one of the biggest deals that has happened for Birchbox, a partnership with Walgreens, including funding with Walgreens while I was in the hospital. Like, um, all of those things happened. It was like effective work time. And it definitely went from like very, very difficult to like, again, trying to focus on being fortunate and the fact that, you know, I was healthy, baby was healthy, and it was going to be Okay. Did you have time after that to take a leave, like take a beat, or did you go right back into it? It was a little hard. I did take a little bit of time. Um, you know, the birth was a bit more dramatic. Um, it was kind of what we expected, but it was still hard. And then, so that gave me a little time. Baby was in the NICU, and I had to announce the, the partnership. And so I was, like, working during that. And then I just asked for, like, a couple weeks of, like, really and truly, like, no time and just family. So my husband took off um, and my kids, we pulled them out of school oh, wow. and we like spent time as a family together. And that was really amazing. Um, but it wasn't a ton of time and I knew I'd have to be back. And I don't know, I feel like my baby girl, my first girl, West, like really was okay with it. I mean, she is so smiley and so happy. And the first day that I was like, I'm going to work, she was just like, <laughs> you can't see what I'm doing right now, but I was smiling. I mean, she just was so happy. It just seemed like she understood this was an important part of what makes me who I am and what does make me happy. Um, and I don't know, it just hasn't felt like as much of a trade-off because I think I found a way to make work a part of my life and to like feel a lot of gratitude to have this part of my life be so interesting and fulfilling. So we've got one last segment. It's going to be quick. It's the lightning round. So we ask you questions and you answer as fast as you can. 
Okay, you ready? What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? President of the United States. College major. International studies and economics. First job? Um, Gap. Sales rep. Worst job? Maybe Gap. I had to clean the bathrooms. <laughs> All right. That, okay. that wins. Uh, worst professional mistake you've made? I remember when I was an intern at a hedge fund, I made a big mistake in like a graph, you know, generated from Excel and a finance job. What's, who's the first call when you get good news? Husband. Who's the first call when you get bad news? Mm, sometimes my brother. <laughs> When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? Recently, this um, just at the end of, or at like Q3 2018. How do people know you're stressed? Eating less. What's your go-to interview question when you're hiring someone? Um, I try when I'm hiring someone to understand tendency towards optimism. So I try to just, it's not a question. I just try to listen to how they frame the career and how they frame the transitions in their careers. What drives you today? Being at bat. What's your shameless plug? I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I loved this interview and this conversation. I feel like we learned a lot. Um, so thank you so much for, uh, for what you do and for teaching us about being at bat. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. If you like this podcast once a week, what about getting more skin? Maybe in your ears, maybe every day. As of now, you can. Meet Skim This. Every Monday through Friday, we're breaking down the biggest news stories of the day and giving you the context on why they actually matter. We'll connect the dots to provide clarity through all the chaos. Search Skim This right now wherever you're listening to this podcast and hit subscribe so you don't miss it.